The following movie is rated R. I'm Linnea, and I like death by DVD. It's a statement. The Video Nasties, A through Z, with death by DVD. House on the edge of the park, and I spit on your grave. This is the Video Nasties, A through Z, with death by DVD. You are listening to the smooth sounds of Hank the World's Greatest and I, Alexander Nash. Before we begin this episode, we would like to advise listening discretion. This particular Video Nasty entry is a brutal one and the subject matter could be very triggering. So, listen at your own risk and just keep repeating. It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. We are discussing, I would say, probably the most brutal double feature we've ever discussed before. And with that being said, we have done Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox on a video nasty. But this really takes the cake. House on the Edge of the Park by Ruggiero Diodato and I Spit on Your Grave by Mir Zarki. It's going to be a rough night. Yeah, I mean, these both these films have similar themes running through them because they are both well i wouldn't say that house on the edge of the park it's the theme of the film as much as is i spent on your grave because the theme of i spent on your grave is rape revenge and it is in house on the edge of the park but there are kind of some other things going on in that film and whether it is i spent on your grave it's specifically focusing on the nature of rape the nature of revenge uh and house on the edge park has got kind of some uh some classes some discussion of class and some other things going on in it. So it's not just kind of so cut and dry uh, as I spit it in your grave, but it still heavily focuses on sexual abuse uh, throughout the entire film. So trigger, trigger, trigger. Just even starting off here with a little bit of aggression, I guess you could say, despite there being some evident nature and, and it on screen with House at the Edge of the Park, that there is some class warfare issues. I think all of that is just bullshit, and the movie, more or less, is 100% exploitation. I don't think a lot of the arguments that are made in favor of the movie are actuality as to where this is just one hell of a brutal movie. And I'm not bringing that up in like a censorship manner or anything in defense of the BBFC. I think I spit on your grave stands a bit differently, and... I don't want to paraphrase and quote the man too much, but Joe Bob Briggs has a great deal of things to say about I Spit on Your Grave, and I agree with a, some of them. I was going to say a lot, but I don't agree with a lot of them. I agree with some of them, and though it sounds obnoxious, he brings up quite often, more than not, that this is I Spit on Your Grave, a very feminist movie, and I don't know if that's the exact words I would use, but I understand where he's coming from yeah, with I, it. I took some issues with how like he he explains the film, as being, oh, I don't see you. I mean, these are obviously the bad guys, yes, but I'll have more things to say about that when we get into yeah. it, about kind of what a lot of people's criticisms are and possibly the the fact that we might be interpreting their criticisms wrong, a lot of feminist criticisms of it, but we'll get into that later. And that's really where I was going off with it. I don't think Joe Bob Briggs, if you're familiar with his commentaries and his statements, if you've watched The Last Drive-In for the last few seasons, he speaks very often of that movie. He speaks very 
heavily of the director and their friendship. So the man really loves the movie. And I don't want that to be a detracting point because I, I agree with him on some points, many of which you're going to make, I agree with. We've actually done I Spit on Your Grave before. I believe it was one of the final live Death by DVD shows. Was it? It, it was one of the last, like, six or seven. It might have been the one that never actually got aired. There were one or two of them that got so screwed up oh, in the recording. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, was it like the bad date movies or something? I think it was. I think that was, we, it was, uh, there's a lost episode of Death by DVD that I think aired for maybe an hour or two after it had come out. And after that, we completely erased and got rid of just because it wasn't the subject matter or the topic. It just got really screwed up and was almost unlistenable via recording. But we, we got really in-depth on our feelings and, and we're speaking about that movie. I know it's been heard. A couple people have commented it if we commented it commented it if we would ever bring that episode back and it's beyond fixability, if that's that's a word. So it's if, not, but we get you. If you've been around the Death by DVD ballpark for a while, you may remember our feelings on the movie, which are neither here nor there because they're neither good nor bad feelings. And that is a big point with this episode, every other on Death by DVD. But the video nasties, we don't pick. We're going alphabetically through the list. We're watching the movies. We're going over if we haven't seen them already and sometimes watching them again to get refreshers on movies we haven't seen for 20 years. For me, I hadn't seen either of these I, I, since I was a teenager. I mean, I'm stumbling about it because I really can't remember. I, I know I tracked them down and I found them because... They're video nasties, and they seemed like something, like one of them stars David Hess. I love David Hess. I, I was friends with the guy. I wanted to see this. It's one of the reasons I became friends with him, fucking hunting down this movie as a teenager. And you see them, and it's like, oh, I mean, some people see them and fascinate on them, but in my case, and I think you are very similar, you see them, and it's like, well, I saw that. <laughs> I'm going to go watch something else now. With House on the Edge of the Park, I think you're – for the most part, I think you're somewhat correct about it just being pure exploitation. Um, I think there is a, a class angle to it, but I also don't think that – I think that was kind of a it's little there. bit of an excuse. It's there. It's definitely there, but I don't think they're really getting in depth with that observation as much as um, maybe Diodato thinks he is. It's just kind of there in, in the background, and mostly it's more about – the nature of brutality of this person and kind of the relationship between David Hess and Giovanni Lombardo Radice, Johnny Rads, as we affectionately call him. A lot of it has to do with their complicated relationship, Hess's complicated relationship with the rest of humanity. And it's the, the weird, interesting thing about the film is yes, David Hess, who does an amazing performance as always, is this fucked up, brutal serial killer. He has his mentally handicapped, I guess we could say. Well, we don't his, even know uh, if he's brand. really a, a serial killer. I mean, we can definitely say he's a serial rapist, and there's a point in the movie between dialogue with Giovanni Lombardo Radice and David Hess where Johnny Rad says to him, well, remember that girl last year? This is going to be just like her, which greatly angers David Hess. And that's when we get to I Spit on Your Grave too. I'll bring this up again. That's something that's really interesting, I think, about both of these movies is that there doesn't seem to be... Um, like a, like a direct narrative, like a movie, like you're watching it through somebody's perspective, like it's David Hess's perspective or it's the party goer's perspective. We get introduced into this narrative and we see something really vicious happen. And then we seem to, without guidance, kind of follow these characters, which really invokes a, a strange feeling because you really can't tell what's wrong or right or who you're supposed to be rooting for. And again, this is very prominent when we talk about I spit on your grave later on into the show. And 
as his character itself, I mean, it, he's so enigmatic. All we know is that he is capable of doing very, very awful things. And I think that introduction and us knowing that with his character, the overall question is, well, he's a man and he's capable of doing these bad things. So aren't all men capable of doing them too? And then we have the kind of Gomer Pyle, Giovanni Lombardo Radice, because I don't know how to describe the character. I would call him a geek. You know, he's just kind of a, a follow-along sidekick. He's really hungry for affection. He's goofy as all hell, and he just wants to be James Dean. And his James Dean happens to be a sociopathic serial rapist named Alex, played by David S. Which is which is kind of weird in this film, because there is an attempt to understand Alex, uh, to understand David Hess's character, and I think part of the problem with that is, A, we're not getting really in-depth with the script to be able to do that, and B, with Hess playing this character, Hess is so good at being intimidating that it's hard to see him be frail at all in this role, or have, like, because um, Giovanni's character, he's definitely frail, and we definitely kind of get into his follow-along kind of attitude, and they even try to, um, throughout the film, flipping him into a, a more like a very sympathetic character, which I think is kind of a mistake. It's interesting to see in the movie, but as, as far as like a film narrative, as far as a story, it's really hard to do that because as the viewer is sitting there watching, it's just like, yeah, but you can't be all as forgiven for uh, Giovanni's character. You just can't because he's done so horrible things. It doesn't matter that he's like been kind of pushed into it by his friend. He still did those things. He might be a little bit slow, but at the same time, he still has done those things. So trying to flip his character, I think, is a bit of a mistake. He does terrible things throughout the whole movie, though. And from the very, very beginning in the introduction, I wouldn't say at the garage, but once we get to the party, his character is following in the footsteps of Alex played by David Hess but on his own he's getting off on it when the whole card game scene goes his favor and David Hess spots him the money and pulls out the uh, straight razor because that's our weapon for this movie we got a straight razor not a switchblade not Krug that's that's the subtle difference that's how we know it's not last house on the left we we had to change the weapon to the exact same fucking weapon because that's all unfortunately David Hess's career even was he co-starred on a late season episode of the A-Team. Guess what he played? An abrasive asshole. Sucks because he was quite... Quite a nice man, actually. <laughs> yeah, quite a, quite a nice gentleman. He was very soft-spoken and very easy to get along with and, and nothing like his on-screen appearances. But there's nothing really redeemable, I think, about Giovanni Lombardo Radice's character. And if anything, it's a, a statement on how easily people are led. He says over and over again, I've never had a friend like you, Alex. I've never had fun with somebody like you before. And his idea of fun is just whatever Alex is showing him. Like, all right, this cool... He's like a black cat cowboy. He wear, I mean, I was going to say he wears all black, but David Hess actually has one of the most ugliest goddamn yellow mustard jackets and vest combinations I've ever seen before with a surplus of white deodorant stains on the armpit. He's not even really playing, like a debonair James Dean character. He's not like a sex appealing thing. He's really a goofball. He's just coming off as like the guy that's at the bar that won't leave you alone no matter how many times you've said, I won't leave you alone. And that's really how the movie starts. He he cuts off a woman in traffic, pulls his car in front of her and says, hey, don't you remember me? I'm the guy from the discotheque. Then fucking rapes her. And that's the most like brutal element of the film is the opening, and it's very abrasive right at the beginning to be just thrown into this scenario and like thrown into a vicious, you know, sex crime like this. And I think that uh, like a difference between this film and I Spit on Your Grave is 
there is sexual assault throughout the film, but with the exception of the first scene, it's it's not so like bare bones and in your face. It's it's there more for plot purposes, but that doesn't really change how like the tone of the film because David Hess is so intimidating and so menacing that it honestly makes it somewhat worse because I'd say the worst scene in the film for me is him taunting um, Cindy with a straight razor and slowly making tiny cuts on her body while singing that Cindy, oh, Cindy. And like, that's like way tamer in reality to anything. And then I spit on your grave, but at the same time, it's almost more effective at times. It's the, de- it's the depravity with that scene, which I also think is one of the most articulate and beautifully shot scenes of the whole movie. It also is completely degrading. It's, it's horrific to watch. It makes you want to touch your own stomach and just pain. The way, it's com- the way the whole thing is composed, I think, works in articulation in both showing you the extremity of the movie, the exploitation aspects of the movie, but the, the true danger that our characters are in, because this is a very tricky movie. We, the audience, as well as, I guess what you could call our protagonist, are led into the situation under false pretenses, and you've got an old switcherunsky at the end of the movie allowing you to know that this was not just a rape exploitation movie, but a rape revenge exploitation movie. And when we get to that point, when we unveil the revenge aspects at the end of the movie, I, I guess for me this is where I have a complaint because it's just, it's well, just It works for me. Uh, what's your I, I, I like it. I love, I, I love the exploitation. I love the sleaze. I love what happens to David Hess and the whole, I guess I should say, I'm the only one that fired the gun because you could fire off a whole clip with this before you even know you've done it. I love the humor behind it. It's really sardonic. But after everything we've been through, I, it's it's almost like it's too quick for me that it's just justice is dealt. This is the end of the story. This is the end of the disco. And then the disco and the credits run. But we have seen, and like the scene you're talking about, we have just seen so many awful, terrible things happen. I guess I'm a little, and this is a, a strange statement. It puts me in a predicament. I guess I'm a little disappointed we don't see more brutality extracted upon our our big bad guys which you know really makes the audience and everyone out there ask well what the fuck's wrong with you hank why (laughs) haven't you seen enough violence i think this one goes in more the last house on the left direction of it is a quick and you know slightly brutal um handing out of justice but i think diodato is also making a little bit of a comment like at the end of last house uh last house on the left that we went through all of this and nobody's better for it. They've got their revenge, but at what cost and violence begets violence, that sort of thing. And I, I think we're not supposed to like revel in David Hess's, um, his comeuppance at the end. I think we're also kind of supposed to feel bad that this is what it's come to for these characters as well. It's not so much. We're sorry. He's dead because he was a piece of shit, but at the same time, it's just like nobody wins in this game of violence. Yeah, I mean, that that really makes sense. It is a complete no-win scenario. But I guess when you're dealing with a genre as explicit as this, and I, I would say almost unrewarding, it's very, very rare. The disco is rewarding, though. The disco rewards me time and time again in this film. I love that aspect. The disco, I really agree with you. And while reading about this movie and doing some research, I found it kind of unique that most detractors and people that have a lot of negative things to say about this movie, their biggest complaint's the fucking soundtrack. And to me, it's one of the things that works terrifically with it because you're exposed to such 
an abundance of negativity, so much graphic violence, and then you've got the smooth 70s kind of Euro disco ABBA sounding shit just popping through the background the entire time. It, it really is, it's like a speedball of a feeling. You don't know how to feel, and it really gets your heart racing because it doesn't allow you to really notice the actor's cues. You really can't tell as easily when something bad is going to happen with such pleasant music as playing. And all of that, I, I mean, I genuinely... Uh, well, that's a weird statement. I was going to say I genuinely like this movie. I, I don't know if I can say I like or dislike this movie. I've seen it for the first time in uh, maybe about 10 years this week. And, I, you know, I don't even think it's incredibly articulately made. I think I texted you while watching it, and I said, I, you know, Diodato's not the best when it comes to being behind the camera as a director. I think a lot of the emotion with how this movie is directed is lost, and if there was perhaps a class warfare or a classist society backstory, it was lost in the direction of this movie, because we're introduced to the characters, and it's much more like an Italian TV show. I mean, not just Italian, but it's much more like an, a soap opera TV show. We get the characters, we're introduced to them, they go to the party, and then the violence is nonstop from that point. And if there was this whole statement against the bourgeoisie and the the poor people not being able to, to what, get laid? I mean, it doesn't really come off like a classic. I think it's, I think it has more to do with the fact that poor people can sometimes be driven to violence. That doesn't like excuse them in any way, but at the same time, like the rich people sit on their ivory thrones being able to get away from the violence. But even when it comes to them, it changes them in the exact same ways. That that sort of thing. I just I don't think it's incredibly successful at all telling that story. What I think it is successful at doing is, well, a the number one thing was a hiring David Hess because he's what makes this thing work, and the next thing is hiring Giovanni because he makes it work. Everybody else is kind of interchangeable with any other actors, but the tone that those two sit because Giovanni has that manic energy he puts throughout the film and. David Hess keeps it cool, but he is so overbearing that that's what makes the film hard to sit through is just his personality. It's just like this bully that you're constantly being confronted by the entirety of the film. Uh, like I was saying before, like the there is some horrible scenes of sexual assault in this film, but as dirty and down and dirty as they could be, it does pull back a little bit when it could be much worse than this, like in I Spit on Your Grave. But it feels just as bad as I Spit on Your Grave because of the way the tone that David Hess creates with his intimidation. I think partially, yes, I agree with you. But on the other hand, aside from David Hess, the direction of Diodato, I think, makes these scenes much more sexually explicit. And, for example, you have the bathroom scene where David Hess is lured to have sex in the shower. And it's more of a tease scene, but the way it's handled is directly invocative, I think, of arousal. I think even the love scene, if you could hardly call it that, with Giovanni Lombardo, Radice, and Lorraine DeSalle from both Cannibal Ferox by Umberto Lindsay, again, it's handled with a lot of eroticism. And a lot of it especially comes down to the shots, that they're close-up shots of the face and the breasts and pubic hair. Yeah, I do agree with that. I completely agree with you that it was shot in a more erotic tone and almost like it's a porn film that you're supposed to find at least oh, when we're showing naked women make them look good it's like but they're being sexually assaulted I don't need them to look good I don't this is not supposed to be an erotic scene and I think that it gets misinterpreted in this film and, and done wrong in the film because it does I think try to get a little bit of 
sexiness to it and it's just like that is completely inappropriate i think that's why i i say this movie's more exploitation than it has an actual point because of things like that but it really makes you wonder i guess this would be a better question for diodato himself because we know he can handle showing us the extreme and vile nature of rape because i don't think anything in cannibal holocaust is sexual i don't think there's any point of arousal while you're watching that movie and you're witnessing some of the absolutely horrific rapes that that happen and again that's a movie that question is questionable why people dislike it so much you've got so many people angry about the animal abuse instead of the absolute brutal nature that the characters that are are being portrayed in the movie have committed upon other people and that's something with this movie so much of the sexual nature and the graphic violence is what people disagree with and the fucking soundtrack for some odd reason because it's amazing it's an amazing resort Alani soundtrack well i mean it's also a counterpoint such as like last on the left is this happy dancy disco and being a uh, counterpoint to the you know these scenes of brutality and sexual assault with this very happy disco music of the time period I just think the people are what needs to be focused on more when it comes to the story and, and truly the disgusting nature of David Hess's character, Alex, because we know he's done this before. And if anything, I mean, the movie itself, I don't think is entirely misogynistic, but I think the point of this character and his nature of brutal violence against women really is a statement to at the time period, 1980 shot in 1979, you had a radical rise of a very different type of feminism. And I feel Diodato was trying to make a commentary on that for, for the good. His agreeance with, um, I don't want to say the anti-men movement, but at the same time, you have like Valerie Solanas, things like Scum. I think this movie is kind of reminiscent of that that radicalized, oh God, that's such a bad fucking term. Radicalized is not radical and this radical movement that had come forward and really was progressing and letting people change. I mean, women couldn't have their own bank account until the early 1970s, and this is 1979, 1980. So the attitude behind the movie, I think, is very pro-feminism, and I just don't think it was handled. It was handled like an exploitation movie, which it's an exploitation director who, at the root of what they're doing, is trying to make money. I believe Diodato is a talented artist and went into his products trying to make art, but this movie was made to make money at the end of the day. I also think it's completely inappropriate for the turn that Giovanni has, like where he chases the woman. I was like, hey, I'm not going to hurt you. And I'm, you know what? I think Alex has kind of really gone off, the, gone off the deep end. Well, you're kind of cute. And then they like have sex outside in like the greenhouse or whatever. It's just like, wait a minute no and i don't like how that saves his life because that's what happens at the end of the movie is the character I'm, we're okay with him now he tried like he was in on all of this but i've had sex with him now and we're all gravy i think he's my boyfriend it's just like we're no that's weird this was a hard right turn that nobody expected and i mean you're going to be asked this question the audience and us and you as as a viewer of the movie with the next movie when it comes to the death of, of specific characters and certain people, how much blame do they have in the atrocities that were committed? I think Giovanna Lombardo Radice's character, Ricky, is to as has as, as much blame. He's as, just as culpable. He, yeah, completely. 100%. He is just as evil. He's just as bad. And 
I, I, the way the scene is set up, I, I don't know what to say because you've got the uh, the, the Christian Borromeo character, Tom, who's going to shoot him. Or is it it's the curly-haired guy. It's not him. It's Gabriella Di Julio who's about to shoot him, the character Howard, and then Lorraine DeSalle's Gloria stops the whole interaction. And the, the scene is set up so pathetically that Giovanni Lombardo Radice's wounded, Alex has cut his chest open with a straight razor, and he's pathetic. So you as the audience member, you don't really want... Howard to fucking shoot him, but at the same time, I'm I'm no one to say anyone deserves death or dictate that, but this character could have been extinguished, but by this point of the movie it's so topsy-turvy, I don't know if there's I would really have justice. Alex kill him. That solves yeah. the problem right there. Instead of slashing his stomach open, he could have easily slit his throat and then held him crying and done the whole act. They could have pulled the gun and the movie would have ended the same way with both of our baddies extinguished pretty tidily. That would have worked. Uh, yeah, so I don't know why at the end we're trying to, like, save him. And I guess the only explanation is, well, some people just, you know, they get led around by other people. It's like, it doesn't matter, though. They took part in a bunch of horrible crimes. They still have to be punished for the horrible crimes. They can't just be let off because, well, he's kind of stupid and his friend, like, pushed him into it. No, well, I, that's I'm sorry that you're kind of stupid, but you did a stupid thing. Go to jail. Well, here's something, too, that raises a question, because Ricky says to Alex, calm down or it's going to be like that girl that you raped last year. So that means Ricky has been hanging out with Alex for over a year. They're friends. This isn't the first time they've done this. This is the first time that's escalated to this point in time or that he's been around Alex and witnessed him killing so if they've worked together, they know this. These guys are, we haven't seen it on screen, and we're not fucking Judge Dredd. We can't make these decisions. We're not Judge Judy and Executioner or anything like that. But you've got to look that these guys are bad people. They've done this before. The way our characters are introduced, I don't think there's any form or any absolution or redemption. There's no way to look at this as a good fucking situation. They're, they're the bad guys. Ricky's a, as bad as David Hess. I, okay, hold on. We don't usually do this on the show, but let me do a little, little round of applause for Hank with his for his Judge Judy and Executioner line. Quite brilliant, my friend. <laughs> I had to stop and like laugh to myself. Anyway, um, but yeah, like this movie, not Diodato's best, but it's it's in his tops because if you go through a lot of Diodato's work over the years. He's made some stinkers in there. I mean, really, he made um, Body Count. Body Count is a pretty awful slasher film. And I understand he like he it, like was an exploitation director. He is making things, but like, and when an Italian made like an attempt at, at like a uh, American slasher film, they failed miserably. They were always bad. They never knew like. Get a guy in a mask and kill him. It's it's just they all feel wrong. They just don't feel like American slasher films. But I would say this is part of Diodato's top canon of films, even though it's really hard to sit through. Not something you want to watch regularly. But the photography's nice. The soundtrack's really good. The, um, a few of the performances are amazing. It's just the subject matter is so coarse overall that I just it's not something I can revel in particularly. It's not something I want to go back to as much as I do love the characters that David Hess and Giovanni play, I just, I can't. You know, that can be said for, I guess, the entirety of David's work, because Krug is a wonderful character. You've got the Franco Nero-led hitchhike. David Hess plays such a, a, a 
awful, awful character in the movie, but Franco Nero is equally as bad, and you find yourself leaning more and more toward the guy that you've already seen rape somebody, and it's it's strange that it's the power of the actor, I think, and that's one of the reasons that David Hess was such a terrific exploitation actor in general, is that he could take these abhorrent characters, but even while watching Last House on the Left, you've got a hand credit to kind of the cool nature of Krug and his cigars. You've got the scene where everybody's in the car and Sadie's just on his lap fucking him while they drive down the road. Who does that? It's just David Hess. He had the ability to really morph and change a character to something really unique. And I think my favorite thing about House on the Edge of the Park is the story I'm going to tell here. Uh, at one point in my life, David Hess was in the back seat of my car while my mom was driving and Richard Lynch was in the front seat. And it was really quiet, and everyone was just, you know, reflecting on the evening. And the only person to speak was David, who quietly leaned forward and said, So what do you think about having me in the backseat of your car? And then he egged me on to try and get me to give Richard Lynch a wet willy. And he was asleep. We'll just say he was asleep. He was taking a little bit of a nap. And I, I felt that was a rude thing to do to a man that was casually napping in a moving car. So I've, I've had David in my backseat... <laughs> an uncomfortable place, but it wasn't as uncomfortable as it could have been or watching House on the Edge of the Park is. I think my story is probably the icing on the cake when I have to deal with this because I reflect and think about those good times before he tragically and unfortunately passed away. He was just a charismatic individual all around as an actor and yeah. as just a human being. He just had, he exuded charisma and just somebody you wanted to be around or be fearful of at the same time, at the exact same time. He was an amazing musician too. Something that's very uh, lesser spoken about, I guess, when it comes to the annals of David ha David Hess and his history. Really talented guy. He wrote "I'm All Shook Up" for Elvis Presley. Had several hits of his own. His mother was an opera singer, and he grew up in New York City. Very cultured guy. Listening to him talk was amazing. He could go from from Shakespeare to exploitation in just seconds. And it is such a tragedy that he passed away before this really new big boom of exploitation being rediscovered and companies like Severin and Vinegar Syndrome who hunt down and find the actors and spend just hours and days with them recording as much as they can. And there's a lot of stuff that's cataloged. Arrow did a wonderful Last Else on the Left box set that you can find that has a great deal of David Hess commentaries and things like that on it where you can get to know the guy a little bit, but really he would have loved this era. I really think if he was around, he would have relished in how much attention movies like this, Last uh, House on the Edge of the Park, are getting. Because really, before this, it's it's not even that easy to get this. There's not a premiere fancy Blu-ray of House on the Edge of the There's Park. There's still, like, what is it? Was it Shriek Show or Media Blasters that put it out? Uh, I should have had the DVD in the room. I found a British company that did it. Shameless. Shameless Media. I found their... UK Blu-ray. I don't know who put it out in the United States. If it is, it's out of print. That was the. I'm pretty sure they did the original DVD, um, like early 2000s. Uh, that has like has con not commentary. Has uh, interview interview with his wife, who is also in the film. Yeah, when it comes down to like a a, a fancy schmancy Blu-ray release, I don't know where the rights are to this. I don't know where the original film is. Diodato works pretty happily with people. It would be terrific for this to be reintroduced to modern horror audiences. I think specifically because of its absolute brutal and terrifying nature. This is a movie that really makes you question why you like horror movies, why you're watching exploitation movies. Re-going re over this, watching this for the first time, and I would say nine or ten years, it really made me ask that question. Why the fuck am I into this? 
Is there something wrong with <laughs> well, me? Like, do I? What the fuck? See, is I look wrong at it a little me? bit differently. If you can get past the the, the brutal nature of it and uh, the subject matter, just sitting back and like watching the for like straight performances of watching like David Hess perform, it's it's you know quite an interesting like exercise in acting to watch. Yeah, but as I far agree. as just like sitting back and really enjoying the story and what's happening, it's just like I. This is no thank you. <laughs> like, I just have no interest. I guess for me, it just makes you wonder how the people that are really great advocates of this movie, what, what their point behind it is. And I'm not saying we're not really big advocates of this movie, but there's a, a different line between, I guess, discourse and discussions and reviews on this movie where a great deal of people have admiration for it because of its absolute explicit nature. And all you can hear about it is, well, I mean, it's exploitation, man. Like, th this is the ultimate exploitation movie, in which you're wrong. The next film we're going to be talking about is. But if it doesn't have anything to offer aside from that, it's not even that it's pornography. It's just fucking pointless, because pornography has a point. Pornography has an art at its base. You've just essentially done a bunch of nothing if it doesn't have a point. And I'm not saying House on the Edge of the Park doesn't. It does. It's just not as clearly seen as the next movie. All right, so this is the part of the show where we ask, why was it banned? I don't know, probably just nonstop, brutal insults, uh, intense acting, and a lot, a lot of sexual assault. That's why it was banned in the UK. It's a 91-minute movie, and I would say within the first 25 seconds, there is a brutal rape committed. And from that point onward, it is a, I wouldn't even say a roller coaster. It's a straight shot of utter depraved violence. Yeah, and don't get us wrong, it's not the goriest film of all time by any means, but it's just, it's the tone is just so hard to get through. It's it's kind of like um, watching something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, where it's just, it's not that I just saw so much like gore and violence, it's just, it's so morose, the tone is just so downtrodden, it's really hard to get through. And it, to me, by the end of the day, I don't feel a great reward when I get to the final sequence. I just, it's like, all right, I feel like I've been whipped. I feel like I've just been really put through the ringer. And watching this movie with the next movie as a double feature, I don't advise it. <laughs> it's, it's the If you're going to do it, at least put something in between, like Weekend at Bernie's or something. I mean, it's still a little dark. It's about some guys carrying a dead person around for a whole day and then get into I Spit on Your Grave just to have a palate cleanser of fucking nonsense idiocy. All right. Uh, we're going to read the little section from The Art of the Nasty by Nigel Wingrove and Mark Morris on kind of the... Uh, the state of House on the Edge of the Park as it stood in um, 1980s England. House on the Edge of the Park, released uncut on video in October 1982. This had previously been rejected outright by the BBFC back in March 1981, was submitted for theatrical distribution. The BBFC took particular exception with this film, when this film was submitted for DVD classification in July 2002, demanding cuts totaling 11 minutes and 43 seconds. So, Jesus. Um, due to severe, severe sequences of sexual violence, humiliating depictions of female nudity, and gross violence. So it's been cut, even to this day, I'm assuming, um, unless it's you know recently been passed without cuts, but it's been cut by damn near 12 minutes since the eighties in England. And it's just the tone, man. It's just like, it says right there that, um, humiliating depictions of female nudity. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's, I guess that's a 
about the worst thing you could probably possibly say. And when looking for um, the PAL VHS uh, pre-certificate the, on the uh, open market and what they're going for now, uh, the one you're looking for is the Skyline Video Form version from uh, 1981, no, 1982. And I've seen them go for the last one that I saw sold went for about 190 pounds or 195 pounds. So it's a pretty high valued video nasty on the, uh, on the trade market. So if you can get your hands on, you can make yourself maybe a little bit of money off of it. Quite a particularly depraved movie, but not one of the worst that will be on this list. It's an interesting subject matter this entire episode, but it is one that I've been looking forward to for quite some time because these movies do have something more to offer outside of sheer depravity. But this being the first one, I think, makes things harder because if we could have started with I Spit on Your Grave, there's a great deal of reasoning and maybe even a debate back and forth of why these things are important and why they aren't important. The presentation with this movie, it takes me right back to, and I'm not trying to be insulting, I think Ruggiero Diodato is a fine director, but he just isn't sharp behind the camera here, and when it comes down to the editing and how this movie was shot, it's just chaotic, and I don't think at the end of the day we have a lesson. Don't, I mean, obviously, don't rape and do bad things, but still, it just it's not that it's senseless, mindless violence for the sake of violence, but at the same time, it kind of is, too. We're just exposed to so much, and we're forced to deal with so much, and then you get to the end of the movie, and it's resolved with just another brutal act of violence. One hand can't really wash the other this way, I guess, is where I'm going with it, but I don't want that to dissuade somebody from watching the movie if you haven't for the first time, or to accuse me of the same thing the BBFC did, because there's no point of censoring a movie because of that. I mean, even if it is violence for the sake of violence, it can still be considered art to whomever might consider it art. Oh, blah, yeah. Blah, blah, you know? I would never argue for this to be banned in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, it's I just, didn't want to come off too conservative. If you're a fan of it, other than for like things like, uh, I really like David Hess's role in this, and blah, blah, blah. If you're like, nah, it's, you know, it, I kind of get off on it. You, ooh, you need to think about some things, son. You need to really examine what's going on in your head and your life because you shouldn't be really into this. There's nothing to be into with a film like this. Yeah, people like that aren't horror fans and you're contributing nothing to the genre, the society. You're, you're just making the stereotype even worse for people and you're literally living out why this movie should be a warning to people. And that's a shame. Movies like... House on the Edge of the Park and I Spit on Your Grave, unfortunately, can and uh, I wouldn't say should, but definitely can offer a picture to women of really what men are. I don't think that this is like an either of these films are like altruistic, anti-men, second wave feministic views. But at the same time, I think they really are not just for the 70s, but even now. A, a, a depiction of men, of how men act, of, of how groups of men act. I really don't think it's that far off. and it's Toxic al- masculinity? Yeah, I mean, it's a really alarming subject, and it's something that could be taken accusatory by most men, because that's what you get all the time. You know, not all men. Not all men are that way. That's not the statement that it's being made, and as a man, it's not really a, a comment that you should be standing there and making. Yeah, I know there are bad men in the world, but not all guys are that way, because I'm a good guy too. Just shut the fuck up. Sometimes silence is golden. Sometimes being an ally is shutting the fuck up and letting other people talk. And getting into this next movie, this is a, a very 
particularly strange film. It's hard to discuss this. There's a lot of different angles that you can go off on it as, and I brought up at the beginning, Joe Bob Briggs. He considers this to be a very, very feminist movie. I don't know if I would entirely agree with, with his wording or maybe his definition of what a feminist movie might be, but it's this. See, this is the. Tra- it's going to be a weird thing here. I spit on your grave is one hell of a movie, and I don't say that as like it's one hell of a movie. Check it out, buddy. It's one hell of a movie. That's all I can say. There's different perspectives of this film because you have people, you know, Joe Bob, who th- like it is very feminist, and you have people like Siskel and Eber who think it's depraved trash, and the director specifically made it to uh, to view this through a, a male viewing lens and you're supposed to kind of empathize with the, um, the, the rapist in it. And I don't see that at all. And then you have some feminists who say that it's done from a male perspective. Now that I can actually argue for, and it's not so much that it's, we aren't supposed to hate the men in the film because obviously we are. I mean, these are depraved scum fucks in this movie and the director portrays them as that. But I think what possibly, and I through another rewatch recently saw was even the revenge aspect of it. No, we're not supposed to like the rapist. We're not supposed to be getting off on the rape, but through the male writer and director, a, he thought he needed to take the rape into such a severe direction to justify the violence, which I don't think he really had to do because any form of rape could, you know, you know, could arguably be an excuse for the revenge at the end, for the brutal revenge. It doesn't have to go to this level. You didn't have to push it this hard to make them look so bad. And also the revenge aspect of it is done through somewhat of a male perspective. Like her her anger afterwards, the, the way she like does her revenge is almost like a way that a man would do the revenge as opposed to a female perspective on how the revenge should be taken out. And that's kind of what I see from possibly a, like, you know, something that you could argue against that it's just, it's even the positive aspects, the more feminist aspects are male feminist aspects and how a male views feminism. Yeah. I think definitely toward the second half of the film, uh, that's so- something that is poignant, even with the characters attitude change and their costume change that they are adopting the mentality of those that have harmed them to get back to them. The sort of, the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing. And I think it's much more thinly veiled than it should have been. I think it should have been much more of a Rambo-esque sequence of her hunting these people down and learning more about them to become more like them. And what we're given with the actual film is a bit more blasé. And I can really see that second half when she becomes the aggressor that it is specifically a much more male and... Yeah, a male kind of idea of what her being aggressor should be as opposed to like a kind of a female perspective of what her kind of her revenge should be. And I could see that, and but I'm not here to like, you know, like... No. A lot of people feel that there's like point of views that the movie is specifically male-led, and I, I disagree. I think the beginning of the movie clearly introduces us to Camille Keaton's character and who she is, and then as we move forward... There, there isn't really a narrator. This is kind of just like I was describing with the last film. It's not that it's unreliable, but we are introduced to the environment and the world with just characters. I don't think we're specifically looking through anyone's eyes. And of to note, when the aggression starts, when Camille is first attacked, Camille Keaton stars in this movie as a writer named Jennifer Hills out in the country to write her first book. When she's aggressed for the first time and they come after her, 
it's her point of view, if anything, because when we're introduced to this scene, she's gone outside to relax and begin writing her book. And we've got this whole voiceover sequence where she's writing the first chapters of her book. She's relaxing. And then these goobers start riding their speedboat up and down the river. Trying to get her attention. But if anything, I think it's nonchalantly her point of view that we are allowed to see everything through, especially since the brutality and the incredibly long rape scene. This, to this day, is the, everyone knows this fact, Joe Bob talks about it all the time, this is the longest rape scene in any film, exploitation or not, and it is considerably graphic. It does not stop. It goes. I think location. it's unnecessary as well. I will go on record as saying I think it's unnecessarily brutal, and didn't need to go to the extremes that it did. And you can indicate rape in a certain way to carry on through the story that you're trying to tell without making it. Because I think Mir was, I can never pronounce his name, Zarki? It's Zarki? infamous on 12 years of this show. We can't even speak the English language that fine, so whatever. But, and I think it's, he wanted to take it to that level to make it as horrible as possible to really indict these men but I just think we can piece these things together without full-blown in-your-face showing every second of it because Camille Keaton's performance is insane in this film because she makes you feel her pain. And I get why that's important to the story, but I just don't think it needs to go that fucking far. I don't think it needs to go for 20 minutes. I don't think we need every little detail of it. There's a, there's a more artful way of revealing these um, these concepts and these ideas without just this 20 minutes of just non-fucking-stop aggression. I think the question that is attempted to be asked in, in the absolute, I guess you could say, frivolity of this overly long rape scene is at what point of this violence do you get to the justification of the end of the movie? In which, I mean, the end of the movie, some would say... Is, is, and I think this is laughable, more graphically violent than the rape sequence. And that's what? Because we're showing violence against men Not or because it's... Close. Yeah, it's It's what? On-screen violence? It's death. And this is the question that I raised. We have to get to a point. And it's not just me. This is the question raised by critics in general. You have to get to a point to justify the death. So you're telling me that she hasn't experienced any form of death with these rapes because she wasn't just raped. And it's not that that wasn't bad enough. She's raped by every member of the cast. So four people rape her. You don't think through any of those, she experienced a form of death. A part of her died. How is that any less or more extreme than anything else? So now I guess it's really the moral question. And this is why there's such a, uh, debacle with this movie because it's the morality well where does she get off being able to kill and that turns you into the exact same character as johnny who in the end blames everyone else blames jennifer if it wasn't for you walking around showing your legs you were looking at me and then and then in your own house you weren't wearing a bra and somebody might have accidentally seen your breast he blames absolutely everyone and i think the critics that do the same thing are detracting from their own feelings. Are you the type of person that likes this movie and thinks it's so 
awful because you're seeing something in yourself. Roger Ebert was very quick to talk about the filthy nature and the sexual nature of this movie. What are you looking at? What sex? There's no sex in this movie at all. There's nothing sexy in this yeah, movie. What, what love scene, what, what eroticism is Roger Ebert looking at? This is, like I had mentioned with House on the Edge of the Park, unredeeming. And with House on the Edge of the Park, the difference is the... The fashion Diodato shot those sex sequences in are sex scenes. He shot them as eroticism. There is nothing erotic. There is no sex in this. This is absolute brutal nature, and Joe Bob Briggs brings it up, I think, perfectly in the commentary, his, his original commentary, because there are two, for I spit on your grave. We're not exposed to a great deal of, I mean, Camille Keaton is nude throughout the entirety of the movie, but her rape sequences are not in an erotic sexual fashion we see the gross sweaty man we see their gyration we see their aggression and all we know is the struggle and the death that jennifer is experiencing in this awful awful moment of absolute 100 percent male aggression the reason for the rapes in this movie is because one of the more goofy friends is a virgin and they decide they want to get him laid and the best way to do it is well there's that new girl in town. So it's it's a whole show and sequence of male bravado. I'm going to teach you how to be a man there, fella. And they're going out in the woods like it's hunting. I mean, this is, it's the most dangerous game. This is a very graphic and, I don't want to say explicit, na na explicit version of the most dangerous game because I, I consider the original most dangerous game to be an exploitation movie itself. But this is, I, I hate saying sexual because I don't want the connotation that there's anything gratifying about the sexual nature of this movie, but this is a much more deviant, a much more aggressive, revenge-based, most dangerous game. I mean, I'm stumbling around trying to describe this because I just, I'm so hesitant to even use sexual in trying to describe this because I think that really detracts from the movie that people... I don't, I don't, I don't understand why people think there's eroticism. I guess when it comes to this well, film, I, I think it was a mistake, and I think this is what maybe some people who lean a little more to the feminist side might be complaining about is when Jennifer decides to get her revenge, she uses her sexuality to like to to get in close with these people, and I think that's kind of a weird thing altogether in the film. Is just you know we may have raped you repeatedly in a day and then tried to murder you. But, um, yeah, sure, I'll get in the car with you. Uh, I believe that you're interested in me sexually now. And just the fact that she ha like she uses her sexuality to get that revenge seems like a male idea to me. And, yeah. and the, the forms of revenge seem like a male idea. Like, um, I'm going to let you fuck me, and right before you come, I'm going to hang you, or I'm going to cut your dick off. It sounds like something a man would come up with, and that's what I mean by it. It's just like it's still kind of done from a male director perspective not so much that we're seeing through the eyes of the rapist but just seeing through her eyes is still kind of a male perspective well it's become really interesting about this is we've managed to single out the directors of both of these films and in my case i feel a lot of the faults when it comes to house on the edge of the park comes to diodato as a director that there were a lot of things he could have shown on screen and a lot of emotion that he could have shown on screen that would have helped dictate the movie to a better angle, a better ending. And in this situation, you've got, I think at their base, somebody that has a very feminist message at its base, but it's so particularly male-oriented, no matter what, the character of Jennifer is Mir Zarki, as are 
Avatar. It's his version of, if I were a woman, what would I do? And it's just like, I don't think I care what you would do. Let me get an actual woman to find out what she would do. And that's kind of where my I, I get off on this one. It's just like, uh, it'd be a little bit more interesting to have an actual female voice in this film, especially um, because of the story you're trying to tell. And you didn't do that. So it makes it a, feel a little awkward and weird at times. And it just seems, as uh, House on the Edge of the Park feels, a little empty. We get to the end of the film, and I, I'm for Jennifer. I'm rooting for Jennifer. But as I just said, it's more or less an avatar for Mir and what they would do. And we're left with that infamous question as she goes down the river. Well, what's going to happen to her? I would like to think that our heroine actually has something good happen, that she becomes a best-selling author. I mean, there's a sequel to this movie that lays everything out in multiple remakes, and we're not going to discuss any of those. We're going to leave it as this fucking movie ends. But in my mind, I just... I, I want something good to happen to her after all of this, and what we're left with with the same ending on House of the Edge of the Park is just utter and total violence, and there is no... It's not that you need a happy ending, but Jesus Christ, at this point, the degradation and brutality that the character has gone through, and not just the character. Camille Keaton, th there's no stunt person. There's no body double she is brutalized throughout this movie the bruises aren't fake when you look at her body throughout this movie which isn't hard to do since she's stark naked the entire goddamn time she looks like a rape victim and that's apparently where Mir came up with this whole idea that he found a woman that had been brutalized she'd been raped and she'd been completely destroyed by a man and he felt the most horrifying thing in his mind note his mind, he, a, a male's mind, was the aftermath. And that's where he shaped this entire story, was his perspective as a man. This is what I thought was the most horrifying thing. So he didn't even really deal with the victim or ask a woman or involve anyone that had actually been through an atrocity like this. It is 100% egocentrically based on his thoughts and his connections of what it's he... It's a masculine perspective for a feminist concept there we go and i think that's where it gets kind of a little bit tripped up and and i completely understand why lots of people don't want to watch this movie lots of people don't want to sit through it in fact every like i am not a person who watches this movie for pleasure i'll like i haven't watched it without a commentary track in fucking years but if i was going to watch it like if someone has asked me about what about i want to watch i spit on your grave i will show it and when we get to the rape parts, I go, and this is where all this rape stuff happens. Here, let me hit this fast forward button. And I fast forward through all of it until we get to the action. Because like, oh, you know, you understand what rape is? You understand how horrible rape is? Now, um, it's going to happen for 20 minutes. I'm here. I spared you from having to sit through it because it's brutal and horrible to sit through. I think to an extent, and this in a little bit is defense, I guess, of the director. And I don't mean to do it. As a viewer, I watched this movie a couple times this week, and the first time I sat down and watched the film, and I went through it with a commentary, I reacquainted myself with the good old voice of Joe Bob Briggs. Hey, I'm Joe Bob Briggs. I think the overall extent and the reason that you go through such a ridiculously long segment, I mean, what, 11 minutes, 12 minutes for the rape scene, is so you might not have to believe in the justification of murder. So you, the viewer, are as brutalized as Jennifer is. So you are as degraded. And I I, I mean, that's a very Kenneth Anger kind of thing to make you go through what your supposed film is, you know, to really feel the whole emotion to it. But when it comes to a story that's being written, directed, produced, 
and led by a man about the degradation and brutality and rape and death to an extent of this woman's inner being it makes you really question why you should be able, and it's not like why you should be able to tell that story because you're behind the camera. Anyone can tell the story they want to make, but why you would choose to tell that story in such a fashion without involving somebody that has, has been there. His idea of what rape is, is just his idea of what rape is. And I think no matter what the meaning of and in my professional opinion the meaning is we go through this entire ordeal to feel what she went with i in the long run agree with you that it unnecessarily is long and the reasoning behind that is you've got a cis male centric mindset i guess is my whole point with with all this drivel that i'm spitting out here but this is a different era in 1978 exploitation films as i said with house on the edge of the park I don't think as much thought as we're putting into the movies was actually put into them whatsoever. I think people like you and myself put a lot more soul and meaning into these films than most of the cast and crew did when they were putting it together. Because at the end of the day, these movies were being made to put out, to make money, to get something back. And that's not saying the directors aren't artists. People love work. People that love art love working in art. They're doing what they did best, and they enjoyed every single second of it, but that doesn't always mean the product has as much meaning as we want to think it does. I spit on your grave regardless if it's a movie that anybody wants to watch, go back to, watch over and over again. It's a movie that needed to exist. It was, it was kind of inevitable that a film like this would exist at some point, and it's kind of important that it does because it does examine something like sexual assault probably not in the most responsible way in the most feminine way but it is something that actually to get the ball rolling on talking about these issues it's like it's something that had to happen and that's kind of how sometimes a lot of art follows is it's almost like culture makes art not a specific person as in the way culture is twisting and forming into new ideas, new concepts throughout the world and, and time, something like this was bound to happen. There's nothing to do with stop it. It's the same thing with like modern technology and the internet. It's and something like cloning. You're not going to be able to stop cloning. It's the ideas out there and it will invent itself at this point. It's not about stopping a particular person or particular group. It's just always going to continue because the concept is out there. And I don't know how I got to the point where I'm comparing um, I spit on your grave to inevitability of cloning, but the link is there. Trust me. It's just, you can't really lambast him for making this film because he, he didn't make it. Somebody would have eventually made it. Well, I mean, it's been replicated itself time and time again to the, you could say house on the edge of the park is just a remake of this movie. You've got that big Jodie Foster film that, is so spoken about of how brave it is to do something like that, where this is the exact same movie, Miss 45. There's countless rape, exploitation, revenge movies, but none of them, I would say Miss 45 is probably the only thing that might adequately handle the subject matter anywhere like this, and it's not like it's an adequate handling of yeah, the subject matter. Yeah, this is matter. the one where it got gritty and it got real with the emotion and the, like the horror show that is sexual assault. And I think there are a lot of, uh, imitators along the way, a lot of people who wanted to take that idea and move it into something else. But overall, it's just this kind of film is going to exist at one point in history or, and or another. And 
there's no point in banning something like this. You don't have to watch it. I'm not saying you are. A lot of people will not sit through this movie because they, they do not have the constitution to get through it because maybe they've been through something like this. Maybe they just don't want to sit through something this um, kind of horrible to sit through at times. But it, it needs to be there and it needs to be available. It needs to be out in the open. Um, and some people sure are going to abuse what it is and they are going to get off on it. But you really can't stop that because those people uh, like they're on the Internet all night looking up horrible porn and all this other shit. It's just like these people exist. So getting rid of something like I spit on your grave does nothing to fix any of the problem. At least it, hell, at least there is some revenge in this film and via male perspective or not. At least there is some sort of uh, answering for their crimes and they just don't get away at the end like a lot of stories like this and especially in real life happens at least you know some people somebody fictional or not is getting revenge for something so heinously done to them i think that's something that really works with i spit on your grave though people don't act like how people act in that movie but it's sort of the suspended reality that you have to take with every movie that yes you're going into somebody's brain you're going into their mind and whatever presentation of art they wanted to show you but at the the base and and the the soul i guess of i spit on your grave day of the woman has countless other names i hate your guts that's one of my favorite titles for this movie i hate your guts great name for a movie i think it's meant to be it's a weird thing to say a positive statement overall i mean it might be misguided i think it's not think i know it is male centric it's it's egocentric it's it's a cisgendered one track sort of thing we're going to go from point a to point b and especially what you had brought up really makes this a really relevant thing the fact that jennifer uses sexuality as a weapon that's just a really dude point of view like oh yeah so she gets raped but she's going to get the guy oh yeah, they'll fuck me and that's how i'll kill them and it's not that it's not clever, it works for what we're seeing in this movie, but it really isn't clever, and it that itself, I think, is a misogynistic thing. I think that is not necessarily intentional, but I think the director has accidentally kind of summed up, well, this is what women can do. So she, it's not that she just got raped, but now she's going to have to use sexuality to get revenge. Like, she can't do anything else, and I don't think that was intentional, but... As you just had, had mentioned, rewatching this movie and going over it for the first time in many years, I think it's kind of evident that it's very squared into that male point of view, and it's it, that's one of the reasons why. And we were talking about how the nudity in this film isn't shot in a sexual aspect, but regardless, you have to ask why she was kept nude for as long as she was. Why well, is towards that towards the end when she is getting her revenge? It's just like I've just seen her brutalized. It's been horrible to sit through and none of it was sexual. And now you're kind of attempting, I mean, it's for her revenge purposes, but you're still kind of trying to like present her as a sexual object so she can get her revenge. It's like, well, this is a weird non sequitur. Yeah. Yeah. Post rape sexualization of our heroine, who is now the Charlie Bronson character. And, and it's not like after the bad things happened in death wish that we had a, a shower scene with Charlie and his balls were hanging out. So I don't know why it needed to be established that, Oh no, our, our masculine character is still feminine. You don't have to worry about that. We didn't. We know. We we know. We know all of that. You didn't have to reestablish it. All right. So, why do we think this was banned? 
probably the 30 minute extended scene of sexual assault that is brutal, hard to sit through, acted incredibly well on Camille Keaton's part, but acted so well that it makes you sick to your stomach and you don't really want to watch it. But I would say mostly that. I wouldn't say a lot of that's acting either. I mean, Camille was really beaten for this role, and I don't know any other way to say it, but when you're watching especially the scene where she's raped on the rock, there that's pain. She's really, I mean, being hurt in these sequences. A lot of the bruises you see are her actual bruises. She was physically beaten up, to say the least, for this role, and she continued with it. I mean, Camille Keaton tried out for this movie, there's a lot of misconceptions that her and Mirzarki had been married at the time period when this film took place. She tried out for the role. Uh, they later on married afterward. There was some connection between this. But it was an actress working for her boss. There is a lot of a lot of misconnotations, I guess you could say, of of abuse that happened between. And I don't want to shadow those because... I personally think Camille was Camille Keaton was abused on the set of this movie, and I think in modern days, even independent films, it is unheard of to have an actor go through as much as what she had to go through for this film, and it it is very very exceptional. It does help add to the layers of realism to this movie, but it does raise a further question of the point of this male centric point of view having this actress go through as much I as she guess did you could kind of say that i mean she was she did give consent by taking the role but there is a certain level of the word grooming is not correct but i'm sure there was some agitation to get her to do some of the things like oh come on you'll be like i mean how it kind of especially in the 70s and 80s was of just kind of pushing somebody into doing things they might be uncomfortable with. I mean, I think regardless of your job, especially when you go to work, you're going to have a, a specific level of trust in your employer that there is safety for you. You can fake a bruise very eloquently, but you see absolute pain. And it's not so much a performance. It's what she went through for the, the final product, I guess you could say, if you want to say it that say way. not so much the, the, the actual scenes of like brutal rape in the film, but even her just having to like be covered in mud and walking around in these horrible like bacteria filled fucking swamp waters and shit like like that is not it's not something you just generally do for fun well that takes us back to the whole sexual nature of things to where i don't understand how people could really think that there is anything erotic about this she's beaten and covered in blood this isn't a presentation or a perceived sense of eroticism from like someone like siskel and ebert who are like oh people are getting off on this how can you, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there getting off, but how could you think that it was made to be got off too? Which makes me wonder, is it Siskel or Ebert that got off on it and made themselves feel bad? Because that is a very, very strange question. There is nothing erotic, there's nothing pleasurable, there's nothing sexy about this movie, and the nudity with Camille beforehand is incidental. She's in her own home comfortable. We're not seeing that because it's to arouse the audience or excite us in any form it's somebody that's comfortable in their own nature and that's the character that we're being introduced to i think i spit on your grave is just overall it's unfortunate that it can't really be examined in any ways but what is presented as its main theme since the main theme of this film is about rape that's all it ever will be discussed about this film we won't discuss really any of the things that really went behind making it or even the psychology behind 
making some of it because it just it's always going to be focused primarily on that extended sexual assault of is this responsible is this ir- irresponsible to present this and that's the like will be the forever question and it can't be examined as anything really other than that you can't take the uh, the critique much deeper it's one hell of a ride. I mean, I said at the beginning of the show, it's one hell of a movie. You can take that any way you want to with a positive or negative. Briefly, just to discuss the art of the movie itself, it is very well shot. It's beautiful to look at. There is no soundtrack. You are left with the sounds it, the of The harmonica nature. really does add some a menacing touch to it, I think. And it is really reminiscent of something like Deliverance with that eerie banjo playing that you know something's going to happen. But I think there is a really great level of beauty to this movie and an artistic integrity taken with the director. It looks great. Some of the most brutal scenes of Jennifer just wandering through the woods are articulately shot. Her just like this bruised forest nymph it's just very articulate it's very beautiful despite what you're seeing being so grotesque so horrific it's very enchanting to be stuck in this uh, medieval gothic level painting while there is so much woe and suffering that's present on screen and then you've got the chattering and the screaming sounds of cicadas and the the water moving all around you it's just really natural everything about the movie has this very natural feel to what you're experiencing which I think helps to the overall presentation because you yourself feel like you're a part of it yeah I think like the all-encompassing term you might want to use is haunting um it's shot in a haunting way the the lack of a soundtrack make the like really backs that up too of just you're haunted by this film after viewing it it's something you're probably never going to forget if you've seen it once um depending on the levels of effectiveness effectiveness within your personal core self. I mean, a lot of people uh, have seen it and it scarred them. A lot of other people have seen it and they enjoy it on numerous levels. Like, I think it's a really good movie. I think it's a well-made movie, but I would never, and I think it asks some interesting questions at times, but I would never consider I spit in a grave a good movie just because it's just way too controversial in what it's discussing to actually give it like a good or a negative, like a good or a bad kind of review of like, I find it really enjoyable to watch because there's nothing enjoyable about watching this film other than like maybe some filmmaking techniques. But other than that, it's just, it's kind of a real bear to get through. I think anyone would genuinely have a very difficult time making it through this film. And it really is, It really is the king of its genre, but when you want to talk about exploitation, when you want to use that term, this is an exploitation movie. This is the definition of an exploitation movie. It not only exploits you, the audience, but nature, everything itself. This is a a pretty pure example of horror and exploitation, and it's it's horrifying. You know, it really needs to be treated as such. It needs to be treated very seriously and not just as some niche subgenre. this is a piece of art but at the same time this is a horrifying piece of art and it needs to be acknowledged for that all right let's uh read our little passage from the uh the art of the nasty i spit on your grave released on video in january of 1982 this is perhaps the most famous of the nasties it topped the uk rental charts when rumors of its imminent banning were uh publicized 
The BBFC still refuses to allow this film to be released uncut in the UK, citing its policy on sexual violence when demanding cuts for the DVD release. So, yes, still considered quite the hot topic in the UK. Also, if you are looking to purchase the original uh, like rental copies of this, you're looking for um, the Astra Wizard and it's you know it's a yellow box with Demi Moore's ass on it, kind of like the American release. Um, and I've seen them go for um, as little as like eighty nine pounds up to like two hundred pounds. Um, it seems to be like kind of a contested uh, price range on this one. So I mean, it's it's one of the more upper tier ones you can look for. It's not in the thousand dollar range like some of the other ones. It's not quite as rare as those, but it's still one of the more sought after of the, of the video nasties altogether. As a whole, we've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, the Video Nasties premiered in 2020, and we've had a lot of interesting subjects. We've had a lot of interesting twists on some of the, the subjects we've talked about. Our Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferox show, I boldly say would be the first time the subject matter was handled the way we handled it. But this one really posed a challenge because you have to look at how these movies were made, and you have to look at the people that made these movies, specifically two men. The subject matter within that, I almost want to say it's laughable that these movies are so lauded, that they are so celebrated, but they're directed, written by men. And I think the point of where these guys were championing, where these guys were, were trying to be nufo, perhaps you could say, is really muddled, and I think a lot of the reasons that especially Mirzarki and Ruggiero Diodato have to say about these movies come 20 years later, that they're coming up with a lot of these things now, and when the movie came out, there, there weren't these questions that were asked. The movies were banned for certain reasons, and then they disappeared, and we have, to use the term again, the sort of nouveau era of film journalism, uh, exploitation niche horror itself has come back very popularly we've been doing this 12 years we've seen the rise and fall of something weird video we've seen vinegar syndrome come from a weird porn company to a major production company and we'll probably be here to see a lot of weirder things and and more stuff happen in horror history and i just find it remarkable that when we talked about this movie 12 years ago, which we did on the early era of Death by DVD, both of them, uh, I Spit on Your Grave has been discussed at least two or three times throughout Death by DVD's history. David Hess himself is a wide subject that we've had. These movies were unheard of. There wasn't any celebration. You can only read about the BBFC and how they were banned and that they were video nasties, and there was a very select few people that had seen them and could celebrate them. And now I find it just really bizarre how widespread and celebrated and loved these movies are, but for absolutely all the wrong reasons. And this isn't a, an overall rant about them being directed by men. I guess it's just a a question I'm asking and a, a bizarrity of, of why movies like this are celebrated over things like Flesh for Frankenstein. Uh, movies that are just as bizarre, movies that have just as many questionable aspects of it, but... I think I can actually answer that question because I mean like fresh for Frankenstein has things that can be picked apart and things that can be enjoyed on multiple levels on like a, you know, even a comedy level at sometimes and just being satirical. But a big portion of it was, I don't know so much about the seventies. I wasn't alive through much of the seventies, but in the eighties, especially in the video era, it became so much more about 
like a test of strength. It became about what did they have at the video store? Have you heard of this one? This one's supposed to be really rough. And when you went to the horror section, it was always about trying to rent something that was going to knock your socks off, that was going to make you change the way you think about things. And that's why Faces of, the, uh, Faces of Death was such a popular rental is because you ain't never seen nothing like this before. And, you know, most of a good portion of Faces of Death's footage is fake. Not all of it, but a good portion of it. A lot of them are like horrible things are fake. But you swore you saw something, especially when the uh, the video quality had been watched so many times and had degraded that. It, like it made a lot of the more fake stuff look even more real. But now in the age of internet, all that's changed because if you really want to see some fucked up shit, all you got to do is go on the internet. You can see murders, uh, um, executions. You can see literally anything you can. And this kind of badge of honor to watch these things is transferred onto something else, which has become shit like 4chan and shit posters and people who in, turn into neo-Nazis has turned to this whole different thing as opposed to kind of the almost cute nature of the 80s, which is I'm going to have a slumber party and I want to see something that I've never seen before. And it's completely changed into something that's become a lot more like weird and violent. And I don't know. It's just like kind of the, the culture's changed in a, in a very odd direction that way. Your answer and the question itself brought on something that takes us back to I Spit on Your Grave and the whole reasoning the movie happens. is It's a bunch of bravado. It's uh, The plot of the movie is a bunch of guys trying to get somebody's badge of honor. And movies like this are the equivalent of Matthew getting laid. That's why they rape Jennifer. They're just trying to get their goofy friend laid for the very first time. And so many people experience these movies in the same fashion of almost being double dog dared to see something of such exquisite. It's being anointed. It's being anointed into the community of like, oh, you've seen Faces of Death, huh? But I think that even itself could really explain a lot of the mentality between people that identify with this movie because the challenge of the characters is to get somebody laid and you make it to the end of the movie. Perhaps the people that find what I mean by this all, the sexual gratification people like Roger Ebert that saw something sexual in this movie is because it is a challenge. It is the challenge of getting to the end of the movie and maybe it made them question things morally that... Joe Bob Briggs has questioned this in his commentary for the film, and I'll question it on this episode. Why would you think that? It really it is a stark and very strange thing, being able to look up the facts, look up what Roger Ebert said about this movie. Why do you think those things? That really makes me look at you as a human being and question your mentality and what you stand for as a man that you would find these assumptions to be true. And... I'm nowhere near as learned as a film critic as he is, and I don't really see much of a difference between us aside from a fucking degree and him working for a newspaper, uh, and that's neither here nor there. I have never once seen this movie ever and found any form of sexual gratification, neither of the films that we've discussed on this episode, not fucking once. With like someone like Ebert, and I think there's a certain amount of othering with statements like that of, well, I'm not into like this, but I bet there are people out there that are getting off on this. And it's almost somewhat equivalent to something like the Satanic Panic to where it's like, oh, these kids out there, they're listening to this merciful fate, this horrible Satanic band that, that's murdering people on stage. And when you really break it down, when you other so hard and you have so many preconceived notions of what's going on, 
you've created a whole like story in your head of why people are doing and why things are made. Like merciful fate is a goofy fun time. Like so many things in like heavy metal music in that era were like satirical even, and just being kind of using very hardcore metaphors, but people saw them as no, they're real Satanists. And I think that Ebert's kind of going on kind of that same thing of everybody who watches this movie wants to watch a rape. Well, there is true that there are people who watch I Spin in Your Grave and did get off on it. That like for you to perceive that everyone who watches it gets off on it is that's a little bit more telling on yourself than it is on any of yeah. those other people. Because if you are thinking that people are getting off on this and that's all you can see, then I, that's uh, weird to me. It's very odd. Yeah, I guess at the end of this show, the overall point of it is uh, Roger Ebert, kind of a dick. Kind of a dick. Well, he's smiling down from heaven, you know, if he had a jaw. So on an ending note, I think what makes I Spit on Your Grave such an interesting movie is the inquisitive nature that you have as, as a viewer. There are so many different ways that you can look at this movie. You can hate it. You can look at it from a feminist angle. You can go as we did and go from this. You know, and, and I keep saying this male-centric angle as if you're going on any other ride with two white cis men hosting this show. And I think what we've done at least is acknowledged that, and that's a very lesser acknowledged angle when it comes to this movie, is that male-centric point of view. And that, if anything, you're not led down any specific character's point of view, but from the very beginning of this movie, it's a man's idea of a woman. From her leaving the apartment, a man's idea of the successful woman that's going to go write her first book, and this is what she would be doing, and this is what a woman would be doing. We have no real touch of... And honestly, one of the things, to interrupt you just very briefly, that I would implore... If you were interested, and I spent on your grave and interested in the ideas we presented, find a female-led podcast that is discussing I spit on your grave and find out what their perspectives are on this and like cross-reference them with what we've said and what some other people have said. I just think that would, more than anything, is an interesting way of looking at it and just figuring out different opinions on I spit on your grave. Because the point of view has been discussed so drastically by men for the last 30, 40 years, it's really a drowned genre with a bunch of white guys talking about their thoughts and feelings on this movie. And we've said it many, many times. We don't pick the video nasties. It's a list. It's an alphabetized list. And if we had just done house on the edge of the park as a show, that's one thing. Or I spit on your grave. That's another thing. Both of these movies together, they do have a great contrast. They do have a lot to offer and bounce off one another because you can look at the first movie and then you can look at this movie and you can see really, I think, a thoughtful difference. I really feel that I Spit on Your Grave came from a better place than House on the Edge of the Park did. I do feel there's a lot of contrast between I Spit on Your Grave and Last House on the Left, but that's better suited for the next Video Nasty episode, and we can come back and touch upon these. Both of the movies are drastically different, but very much the same. But it seems like we've reached the end of the videotape, the ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. This was the Video Nasty A through Z with Death by DVD, House by the Edge of the Park, I Spit on Your Grave. You'll hear from us soon. We're in your house. Catch, catch the horror train. Freeze frame, gonna drive you insane. 
I don't know why I did a falsetto with it. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.